Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Morning, Corey. It is a good morning. You have uh, successfully gotten me out of laying flagstone <laughs> at my house. By, I just had to come into the office and record a podcast with Randy today. So, uh, Well, that I saw that on your Instagram page. And did you notice how many people said, Corey, you are doing handyman work. You are obviously not listening to your buddy, Randy. <laughs> There were quite a few references to to your ability to get out of doing manual labor at home, for sure. Yeah, I fished, if that's any. I, 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 I incurred no bodily injury while I was fishing while you were laying flags down. <laughs> How's your back this morning? You know, the, the pain from lifting eight ton of flagstone rock is okay. It's the sunburn that got me. Hmm. I, uh, I'm very white, I guess. I used to tan really nicely, but as I'm getting older, my, my skin's first foray into the sun each year <laughs> results in a sunburn. So yeah. I'm uh, lathered in aloe vera and ready to go this afternoon. Oof. I'm still trying to figure out why you have three teenagers and you do this manual labor. They all have full-time jobs. That's what they keep telling me. I went out looking for firewood yesterday, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to get all of this and bring it home, and you guys are going to be splitting wood all summer. And they all piped up, we have full-time jobs, Dad. You can't expect us to do that. Hmm. It's hard to wow. argue. I mean, I I don't know when yeah. I was a teenager if I really had a, a true full-time job. I worked, but it was yeah. I did yeah. a lot of playing, too. Yeah. All right. Well, so, I guess that's that explains things. So it's it's giving me a glimpse into the future that I don't like a lot. I'm going to have to be splitting my own wood and laying flagstone on my own. And well, if you listen to my other podcasts and lectures, you would know that you don't own a wood stove either. If you want to hunt a lot, I know. See, the Just problem is you, my wife. My wife is. Um, she's completely capable of doing all of these things on her own. And yeah. I feel guilty when you know, I came home last year from elk season and there is a Creek bed carved in the hillside behind our house. And it has a whole bunch of river rock laid in it. And I thought that wasn't there when I left. So I said, Hey, what, what happened on the hillside? And she said, Oh, I went and rented a rototiller and we're talking, I'm talking a hillside that's steep enough that the excavator, when they, when they excavated our home site, had to track up and down it to keep it from sloughing off. So it's a, a very steep hillside. And I said, how in the world did you run a rototiller on a side hill on that steep hill? And she's like, yeah, tell me about it. My shoulders and arms are killing me because I had to go up and down it three or four times. And I'm thinking, okay, this is this is legit. And she's like, but the worst part was when I rented the jackhammer and broke out all of the concrete on the edge of the foundation that they buried under there. My wife went to the equipment rental place and rented a full-size rototiller and a jackhammer while I was gone and, and used them. Wow. 
So that's that's hardcore. I I, I really have no marital advice for that situation. Corey. See, I'm I knew other, <laughs> other than just mind your p's and q's. Because if your wife is is got the fortitude and willingness to run a jackhammer, she's probably pretty pretty capable of taking care of herself. So behave yourself. So I was going to say, not only taking care of herself, but making sure that if I don't carry my weight, that mm -hmm. I carry my weight. <laughs> Did I ever tell you the story that the old guy I worked with at the sawmill when I was getting married, what he told me? <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay. Well, he, he I said, do need to repeat it in case somebody else. I think it was on one of our previous episodes. But okay. I want, it's so Don Bowman was his name, and he looked at me, and he knew my my now wife, girlfriend at the time. And he said, Randy, I've worked with you for two years and I've met your, your soon to be wife a few times. And just understand there's nothing you bring to the table that she can't replace by noon tomorrow. So behave accordingly. <laughs> I think your wife has taken that to a new level, Corey. Yeah. <laughs> so behave accordingly. That's... She could replace you by noon tomorrow. But That's she could probably probably replace you by 10 o'clock tomorrow. I was going to say, she could replace me by this afternoon. So <laughs> when she says we have 16,000 pounds of flagstone arriving tomorrow, I clear my schedule. Wow. Well, let's let's do a podcast about hunting in, among predators. How's that? Uh, that's great. Are we going to make, are we going to scare people away from hunting around predators or encourage them to do it? Well, you Idaho guys are a different breed. Every time I interact with Idaho guys, the comment is, oh, there's nothing to see here. Move along. Oh, Californians came and scared all the elk away. Wolves they ate all the elk. You guys are always scaring people off. Yeah. So... I don't know if we're going to encourage them or scare them off. Depends <laughs> on if it's me talking or you talking. I guess so. I'll I'll try to I'll try to keep things in balance for you. All right. So, what kind of brought up this podcast idea is we got some emails the the other day, you know, last week, that were questions about hunting in grizzly country, and you got to explain to me because you manage this side of it how these emails show up. They, they go to the Elk Talk Podcast? Yeah, so you just go to elktalkpodcast.com, which is the official website of the Elk Talk Podcast. And there's a contact tab, and people can just click on that, and then they enter in their name and email address and a question, a comment, a suggestion, and hit send. And then through the inner workings of the interweb, it goes up into outer space and travels around and then lands in our email inbox well some people did that and in our email inbox came these questions about hunting elk and grizzly bear country and so being the smart guy i am i've i did a topic on this not too long ago in my live presentations youtube live and i know on in, wednesday nights right usually wednesday nights yeah but when i'm fishing i don't do them so <laughs> that's because your wife told I, you to go fishing, right? Exactly. So I, I will be doing it this Wednesday, but I type in elk hunting in grizzly country and what pops up an article exactly titled elk hunting in grizzly country on this website known as elk101.com. 
And that is an older article. My my good friend Ron Nijalik, who actually lives in Cody, Wyoming, wrote that article, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And that guy has more grizzly stories and encounters with grizzlies than anyone I know. Yep. So I went through and read the article and compared it to the latest information the the recommendations all the agencies have for how hunters should conduct themselves in grizzly country and ron's article is still pretty much verbatim of the information that people suggest today yep so uh where do we want to start on that i mean there's so many worries concerns some legitimate some maybe urban legend uh i i'm i'm just trying to think where it's a big topic maybe we could do three podcasts on it but yeah uh, one for each one for each predator but yeah first i think you know specifically focused on grizzlies i can i can share an experience from my first time hunting uh elk in grizzly country i've shed hunted in grizzly country before and uh you know different things but this uh this particular experience I'll tell you right now, your first time camping in grizzly country when you're elk hunting, I be prepared not to sleep the first night or two because <laughs> every single pine cone that hits the ground, every single mouse that runs across your tent tarp, you wake up and you quit breathing. You just hold your breath and you're like, was that a bear? You're just listening for these little, you know, the, the thumping of the pads outside your tent. And after about the third night of no sleep, you, you do sleep pretty good. And then you wake up scared in the morning because you slept through so hard. And you thought, man, a grizzly could have came into my tent. I would have known, wouldn't have known about it. But that was, you know, my first experience there was being very aware at night, um, listening to every sound and then kind of getting a little comfortable and Mm -hmm. you know we were we were hiking in in the dark in the morning coming out after dark at night and there were several times we would see grizzly tracks over our tracks on the trail Uh, we were always seeing plenty of fresh grizzly sign and never seeing grizzlies and so it kind of you know after the first couple days it, it kind of becomes um you get more comfortable and i don't you know i think we might have got too comfortable and then uh if you remember from the linguist film that Sitka put out a few years ago, they actually filmed part of our season and we were hunting in grizzly country and same, same situation. Then we're, we're hunting, we're seeing sign, but not seeing any bears. And then Donnie shot an elk and we went back, I believe it was two nights later after he shot the elk, we packed it all out and sat on the ridge across from there and watched five adult grizzly bears fighting over that carcass and realized we're walking through these same woods and not seeing anything. And all of a sudden five bears come out of the woodwork and are on the same hillside. And a couple of them are just absolute giant mountain grizzly bears, just huge <laughs> locked up growling, fight and rolling on the ground with each other. And we, uh, our, our, our common sense was quickly reinstalled and, yeah. But yeah, that, that was my first real experience and, you know, kind of went through the whole range of being super 
aware to kind of putting it out of mind to being reminded. And now I think we've got a good balance there. But like you said, it's it's super scary. You don't even want to go outside your tent in the middle of the night um, when you first get there. Uh, but then I think after you spend some time there, you realize as long as you take precaution, bears aren't looking for trouble. And yep. I think if you aren't leaving food readily available for them and giving them a reason to come to you and mm-hmm. and start trouble, um, the odds go way down that you're going to have, or the, the chances go way down that you're going to have a, a run-in or any kind of an encounter. But there are, there's always those stories of, you know, people cow calling, sitting on a stump, just cow calling, minding their own business, and bear comes sneaking in from behind and grabs yep. them. So, yeah, I think just, uh, yeah, we can talk on a whole bunch of things that we can do to so make us more in, prepared. In Idaho, where you live, is your grizzly country mostly just the northern parts of the panhandle and the eastern part, eastern part of southeast Idaho? Yeah, I think it runs pretty much the whole eastern border of Idaho. You know, western Montana definitely has grizzlies, especially yep. northwest Montana. So those bleed over into Idaho. Uh, and then, yeah, that southeast corner down west Yellowstone, uh, Island yeah. Park, some of that definitely is is probably the higher concentration of grizzly bears. Yeah, and I tell people that in Montana, for the most part, Anything west of I-15, the interstate that runs north and south, west of that, you better be paying attention. And anything south of I-90, which runs from Billings uh, through Bozeman, Missoula, all that, south of that, you better be paying attention. And in Wyoming, pretty much anything west in the western half, probably west of the Bighorns, you better start paying attention. Uh, I, I think probably Northwest Wyoming's got to have the highest density of grizzly bears there is. Yeah, just anything around Yellowstone Park there uh, is going to have a lot of grizzlies. And considering we've already had five incidents this spring and summer just in Montana, uh, seems like we've got more than our share of them also. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, you know, it's it's so hard because they tried opening a season, you know, the whole political thing got that shut down, but yeah. now we're starting to see because there are so many grizzly bears because they are unmanaged, they're starting to to roam. And so yeah. you're seeing their territory being expanded and you know, they're they're yeah. showing up in places where you would never expect them and have never seen yeah. them before and all of a sudden somebody reports a grizzly bear and fishing game goes in and sure enough there's a grizzly bear there and yeah i my first uh encounter well i'm gonna say I, i'm not will to save my in the field encounter with a grizzly bear for later but my first dump jump into the deep end of the pool related to grizzly bear management was in 1999 wow that's a long time ago <laughs> 21 years ago Governor Mark Roscoe in Montana got to appoint five people from Montana to join five from Idaho and five from Wyoming. And it was called the Governor's Grizzly Bear Roundtable. And you were supposed to pick five people from different backgrounds to represent your state. 
Well, of the 15 people on that committee that met for the better part of three years for two days every quarter, uh, what our job was, we met with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service people to develop the, the delisting or the conservation strategy once the Yellowstone subpopulation got delisted. So I was the, the token hunter among the 15. And I learned more about grizzly bears in those three years than I ever care, cared to know about grizzly bears. But that's, that's kind of the background that I come to it from. Yeah. Uh, and here we are look, 21 years later and still haven't got them delisted. Yeah. And every scientist that was involved in that conservation strategy Every federal biologist, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologist, every one of them are in favor of state management. But unfortunately, the courts, you know, all it takes is finding one sympathetic federal uh, court, and that's where they file the litigation, and it gets thrown back in your face every time. And you can talk to any biologist that made their career uh, on grizzly bear studies. And every one of them will tell you that the greater Yellowstone population has nowhere else to go. Yeah. The landscape is saturated with grizzly bears. <laughs> so to think that by keeping them listed, that somehow that's going to improve things, all it is is pushing grizzly bears into areas of higher conflict. And, totally. Uh, so, and we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing fatalities yeah. every year. We're seeing uh, a rise in uh, attacks, you know, and yeah. I'm, I was trying to think of the word, you know, where people, a physical attack, not just an encounter, but an actual attack where people are mauled or yeah. otherwise sent to the hospital. And it's definitely a concern, you know, and especially if you're hunting yeah. in some of these areas where they are so densely populated like that. Uh, you have to you have to take all the precautions. You really do. You can't yeah. go into it uh, with your guard down. But at the same time, you don't have to avoid those areas. There's you know you, you have to be careful, right. but you don't have to completely avoid them if you're prepared. Yeah. So as we kind of now talk about the the on the ground hunting part of it, uh, when you and I archery hunted in Montana, we were in a one of these areas in high grizzly bear densities. Um, most mornings or most days, we'd see grizzly tracks that weren't there the day before. Yeah. Um, I didn't really get unnerved. That one really big one we saw was like, oh, that's <laughs> cool. But what got me unnerved is the one day, one morning, we we're walking down that skid trail and there's one big grizzly bear track and then two sets of small tracks. Yeah. Like, Uh-oh. These are these are the kind of tracks that result in bad encounters. Yep. Uh, so, um, when I talk to the scientists, the biologists, the experts on this stuff, and this is kind of what Ron wrote a lot in the article, is there's a lot of things you can do to first of all avoid an encounter with grizzly bears. Yeah, you're still there's there. If you're in grizzly country, you are never going to get to a zero risk situation. 
So there's things that can get you from a high risk to a lower risk, but there's still always the risk. So even if you do all the right things, you still could have an encounter and just bad luck. Yep. But but for me, I <clears throat> I try to know at the time I'm in the woods and whether, you know, if someone is out shed hunting or someone's hunting in September or November, grizzly bears are in certain locations at certain elevations, feeding on certain food sources that you can almost a low, a big uh, mechanism for lowering your likelihood of an encounter is by knowing where they are and don't be in those places. Even though the, let's say the Madison range of Montana, okay, it's got lots of grizzly bears, but at certain times of the year, like in late August, early September, they're going to be way, way up high. Well, fortunately, most elk aren't that high in September. So uh, you can avoid some of the higher density areas of grizzly bears by not hunting super high. Uh, yep. Like where you and I hunted on that hunt, that's where I've had my two grizzly bear encounters. I avoid the north facing slopes that are still filled with huckleberries. <laughs> and so thick <laughs> that you can't see 20 yards right. in front of you. So you're more likely to surprise a <laughs> bear. So I got to tell you folks, we're, we're on this hunt. We're standing up on this old road and a bull is bugling down below in this north facing drainage. And Corey looks at me like, uh, let's go get him. And I'm like, no, Corey, I had a grizzly bear encounter down in there. Uh, and it wasn't really an encounter. I sprayed myself partially <laughs> with bear spray. And I'm telling Corey this. I'm like, look, I don't want to go down in there. There's no bull big enough that's worth the number of grizzly bears that live right down in this drainage. Well, before I can impart any further wisdom, I see this little glimmering dot of Corey heading down through the huckleberries with Lauren, our camera guy, right behind him. And it's like, well, I guess if nothing else, I'm going to be here to witness Corey getting eaten by a grizzly bear and tell his family where his carcass is at. So... We went down there, and Corey calls in this little five-point, which under normal conditions, I would have been upset that we didn't shoot it. <laughs> but I didn't really care to have a, a grizzly bear hanging in the – I mean, a, a, an elk hanging quartered in the trees down in that drainage because the other thing I knew is having talked to a lot of the scientists who show you the mapping of the – the collared bears and the densities, that drainage we were in, we violated the law I just mentioned of avoidance is the best, you know, avoiding their area is the best way to avoid an encounter. We violated that rule when you drug us down there, Corey. See, and, and my my recollection of that situation is slightly different. I, I remember hmm. standing there and bugling and a bull answering Yep. And I turned around to ask you, is this a safe place to go? And you had gotten sidetracked chasing a grouse up the hill. Right. And I, I, I turned had. to Lauren and said, are we okay to go down? He's like, yeah, I don't know why not. So we dropped down in there. Yep. And you stayed back 100 yards and watched us go down in there, knowing that mm -hmm. that was a, a dangerous place to be. And I don't remember any warnings. In fact, I think this is the first time that you've ever told me that 
the the collar data suggests that it's a place we shouldn't be. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, I should... can't. I I can't take any of the responsibility <laughs> for dragging this down in there. I was not warned. I thought I fully warned you. I thought I told you that I, I said that uh, one time I chased an elk down in here and I got in there and the grizzly bear scat was so fresh and so thick that I disarmed my bear spray. I'm you like, did, but it was in the dark as we were hiking up out of there that night. Okay. And so what I did, folks, I climb underneath this deadfall and I have my bear spray on my right hip. And when I do that, I there's such steaming piles of fresh bear crap that I'm thinking, all right, I got to be on the ready. And as I crawl under this log, my elbow hits the the spray mechanism. Thankfully, it was pointed behind me. But if you've ever heard the noise bear spray makes when it comes <laughs> out of the canister, it sounds like a bear. I mean, it's loud. It's like <sighs> this noise. And if you're already on high alert, I turned to look behind me where the noise had come from, and the the slight thermal coming downhill still in the morning brings that mist of bear spray, just, you know, particles of it. And I, I, this isn't like the full blast down into my contacts. I'm like, oh, my goodness, my eyes are swelling up. I can't, I'm coughing and hacking. I left that bull. He he was free to go. I I climbed <laughs> out of there, got in my truck, went home. My wife looked at me like, "What happened to you? You look like crap." Uh, I kind of got uh, a little collateral damage here from a bear spray. So, <laughs> but uh, well, I have but, a similar bear spray encounter. A similar in in a few ways, but mm-hmm. we uh, we hunted in Wyoming several years ago and uh, we were in grizzly country and I had shot a bull and we thought this would be a really cool opportunity to hang a trail camera on the carcass and see how many, you know, see how long it takes for a grizzly to come in, see how many grizzlies come in, see how long it takes them to to clean up the carcass. And so we, uh, it was down in this little willow patch, real tall grass and willows, just a little depression there off of a ridge and so i hung the trail camera in a tree and we skedaddled out of there and packed the elk out and i think it was three or four days later uh, we're driving back from our last evening of the hunt it's 30 minutes before dark we're heading back to camp and i thought oh we've got to go get that trail camera (laughs) that's when reality set in even driving in there it's like what did what were we thinking like this is not yeah. This, this isn't fun now. Like we're we're on edge driving in there <laughs> thinking about it's almost dark. We have a half mile hike in that ridge that was such a great place that shaded the elk while we processed it that morning is now completely a barricade to any sound we make going in there. The bear's not gonna have any warning until we're within twenty yards of it. And uh, we, we knew we were in a real situation because cameraman John just sat in the back seat giggling the whole way in there. He had like the most nervous giggle. Like he was, you know, scared. You can see when he gets out of the truck. But we filmed it. We got out. We're, uh, we're talking, hey, we're going to make noise. We're going to say, hey, bear, we're going to do everything we can. And I'm a, I'm a bear spray guy over a firearm. Donnie mm-hmm. had, uh, I think he had bear spray and a, and a sidearm. 
And then John had the camera. So we're walking in. We had a plan. Okay, we're going to get into here. We're going to, you know, talk loudly. When we get to this certain point, we're going to stop and just listen and see if there's anything before we proceed over the ridge. And so we get to that point and we're kind of stopped and just dead silent. You know, there's not a, a, anything making any noise and just listening for any rustling in the brush. And we're 30 yards from the carcass. We have about 10 yards to go to be right on the ridge top. And then we're literally right on top of it. And as we're standing there, all of a sudden, the brush right in front of us, 10 yards in front of us, just starts crashing and it parts and there's black coming through the brush right at us. I mean, it literally is coming right at us. And so I have my bear spray out and I turn and, you know, kind of turn to run, uh, you know, still keeping my arm somewhat pointed in that direction. And I think just in the the stress of everything tensing up to turn and run, my thumb hit the the bear spray trigger. And the wind was blowing right at cameraman John and Donnie. And uh, they they took a pretty good blow of bear spray to the face. And it turns out it was a, a vulture flying off of the carcass coming up the, out of the brush flying up out of there. So... That was our story. We did. Uh, the, we had the trail camera on video mode, and as we walk into it, it's the funniest thing because I go in there with my bear spray, you know, up and armed, kind of looking left and right, head on a swivel. Donnie comes in with his pistol, like side armed, like from a gangster movie or something. Got that in one hand and bear spray in the other hand, and he, you know, it's just it's pretty comical to see us go in there. We went in, unstrapped the camera and turned and ran out of there. But it was pretty cool that night at camp to be sitting there. <laughs> we're going through the card, you know, we've got the laptop there. We're scrolling through the card and we're like, Raven, 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 Vulture, Raven, Raven. Oh my goodness. There's a grizzly. And we got video of a grizzly coming in and eating on the carcass. And wow. So we learned a lot from that experience. But. Yeah, <clears throat> you know the Norman McLean who wrote the book A River Runs Through It. One of his mm-hmm. quotes was, "We were too young to know we owed the world a tragedy." It sounds like you guys were too—maybe not too young, but too <laughs> brave, too confident, too ignorant yeah. to ignorant, know that you you owe you owed the world a tragedy. There, yeah. You'd luck yeah, out. one of those things that just, you know, we're head on a swivel when we're working up the elk there. But then we get done and it's like, all right, we made it. We're done. The elk's loaded on the packs. We're safe. So let's put up a trail yeah. camera. You know, <laughs> all, the, all the fears and everything had left because we're safe. We made it through. And then as we're driving in to get it, everything comes crashing. It's like it's dark. The wind's coming down the hill. The bear's not going to be able to hear us till we get on top. But all the things that you talked about, you know, as far as lowering those chances were... We're like, yeah, we can't check that box. No, we can't check that one either. Yeah, we're we're going into a pretty stupid situation here. Yeah. Well, I kind of break it down into three activities or three locations, whatever you want to call it, that you need to really be paying attention to. One is your camp. Two is once you have an elk on the ground and you're processing it and then you're coming back to retrieve it. And then there's the third thing of just, all right, while you're out doing your hunting, while you're trying to find the elk and have this encounter, and each of them represent different possibilities or probabilities of encountering a bear and require different mindsets or or different protocols, let's put it that way, uh, to avoid or reduce the likelihood of an encounter. 
And in the Elk 101 article, uh, Ron starts by talking about, he, he starts with your the precautions you should take around your camp. And these are, these are textbook right to what you would get from the U.S. Forest Service or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the National Park Service or any of your state wildlife agencies about what you should do around your camp. And it it comes down to probably two, three basic things and then some additional things. But one is keep a clean camp. Uh, You know, a grizzly bear in September in October is in what they call hyperphagia. They are looking for calories, calories, calories. They don't care who they have to fight for those calories. They're coming to the odor, the smells, because they want more calories. So keeping a clean camp is uh, at the top of the list. Uh, and then the the way you keep a clean camp is how you behave and things that you do while you're in your camp. Uh, uh, for us, and I know you guys probably do this same thing, Corey, but we, when we go in to grizzly country, which I'd say in Montana, most of our Montana elk hunts are in grizzly country. So what, they give some ideas of how you should store and cook your food. And they say, do that at least 100 yards from where you plan to sleep. In other words, where your tent is. So we have an area where we cook and do all of our stuff that's at least 100 yards from our camp. And it's a pain in the butt. I'll, I'll just say, yeah, it has some inconvenience. And we store our food in bags, in, in dry bags, up in a tree at least 10 feet off the ground and at least four feet away from the trunk. And so we've got all these ropes and we store our food and cooking utensils in one bag and then any trash, debris and other stuff in another bag. And when we're out in grizzly country, we don't cook with oils or other stuff that you're going to have to pour on the ground or pour into a fire pit or something. It, if, if you got, if you're cooking bacon, <laughs> uh, you 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 may as well just get your sidearm or your bear spray ready. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're gonna, not only are you going to have the aroma of the bacon, but after for multiple days afterwards, it's like, okay, what do I do with all this bacon grease or the oil? And a lot of people are like, oh, I just go dump it on the ground. Well, guess what? you're going to have a bear come by in short order. (laughs) So, you know, how you cook and and what you cook, uh, that's really important. Uh, They they say don't sleep in the same clothes that you wore while you were cooking. So, again, these are things that are a pain in the butt, right? Okay, you get back to camp, it's dark. You got to change clothes just because you're – you don't want your clothes to smell like cooking odors. Um, and then also the other thing that I never really thought about till I read these protocols <clears throat> and I started paying attention to it is your toiletries and other things should be stored out just like your food is. Um, toothpaste, uh, what, whatever it is. So yep. keeping a clean camp is super, super important to the actual avoidance of, of, a, of a bear coming into your camp. 
And when you're hanging your food, you know, I always try to hang mine somewhere where the wind, even if they did smell food, the wind isn't going to drag them through your camp while they're following that odor. Which gets me to the next step that you, you as you're talking about Donnie's elk and the, the trail camera stuff, you know, there's a whole nother set of precautions when you're successful. Oh, yeah. And, and, and well, what I you got to do when you got an elk on the ground. Yeah. And, and going back to the camp thing for us, you know, you, you just little things that you don't even think about. Um, you know, we usually have a little garbage sack. We have a we have a separate cook tent, just a shade shelter that we put a table and our stoves under if we're hunting from a base camp. And we always have a garbage sack there. And just little things like candy bar wrappers, um, empty Ziploc baggies that had trail mix in them. You just, you can't do that when you're hunting in grizzly country. You know, I think common sense things like, yeah, don't leave a an open peak dehydrated meal that you've ate everything except for the little bit in the bottom corners you couldn't get out. You know, don't leave that sitting out exposed, but just little things, anything that has any scent, a bear is going to be attracted to it. And so you yeah. do have to just be hyper, hyper cautious. And there are some, you know, there, there are some forest service campgrounds in a lot of areas you can camp in uh, that they have actual food storage boxes, bear boxes to put your food in. And yep. uh, we stopped at one one time and drove through it. And there was a, a little uh, forest service restroom outhouse there. And it looked like somebody had locked a grizzly bear in that outhouse because on the inside, no, no kidding. It's great big, heavy, like two inch thick steel door on the front of it. And on the inside of it, there were huge grizzly bear claw slash marks down the door on the inside. And the door was bent, you know, dented in from the inside. I'm pretty sure a bear either got in there and the door shut and locked, but I would not want to have been the, the person that was responsible for opening the door and letting that bear out of there. But it, uh, <laughs> You know, if you do stay in those campgrounds, they they help you take care of some of those precautions. Uh, they've got bear dumpsters there, so every night you can walk down and dump your garbage in that so you don't have to store it around there. Um, I think that some of those campgrounds, they do a good job of patrolling them and making sure that no bears are coming in. And if there are problem bears, they take care of them. And so if you are super scared about camping in bear country, that might be a good option to to alleviate some of those concerns because they are set up to help you manage some of that stuff in camp. Yeah. Well, then you got the, the mixed emotions. Uh, I, I always tell people, uh, that getting an elk down on the ground in grizzly bear country is the hunter's definition of mixed emotions. <laughs> <laughs> of hey cool i got one now cool is this uh, punch my tag take some pictures and then it's like uh oh guess what <laughs> i'm gonna be here for a few hours and no matter how i do this i can't carry all this out in one trip and i better be thinking about this so i think that's where quite a few hunters really get on edge is they they hear the stories that and many biologists will tell you this, that now in September, October, especially when rifle seasons start, uh, grizzly bears have come to associate gunshots with gut piles. 
that's not some barroom myth it's it is proven they've they've demonstrated this that grizzly bears have developed the habits of scavenging carcasses and gut piles so in archery season we don't have that we just have all this wonderful odor in the air we haven't had the gunshot to announce our presence but uh when when you guys you know using the example of donnie's elk something tells me you probably didn't just casually oh yeah we'll do this we'll do that let's take some more pictures let's do this i mean for me when i have one down in grizzly country i'm pretty serious i you know i take my pictures i tag my animal i do all the things that i gotta do but I get with the program pretty quickly. Yeah, no, and, and it it was. I think we were fortunate. The area that that one uh, in particular died was a great area. It was right on the edge of some timber. We could see back into the timber quite a ways. Uh, the thermals were good. Big open hillsides below us all around. So we were really in a high visibility area. Um, a really good spot. So we weren't as rushed on that one. But mine, on the other hand, on that that trip, I shot it right before dark. Uh, fortunately, didn't have to track it at all. It it fell over right there. Uh, but it's still, you know, it takes a couple hours to get pictures and get it worked up in the dark. And we had to come back for a second trip. And so we hung, yeah. or we uh, we packed all of the meat about 200 yards down the trail, got it to the the main trail on the creek bottom, and we put. I think we left two quarters and the head there for the return trip if i remember right and packed out everything else we could then and uh it was it was scary because you know that creek bottom you can't hear really good there's just a little trickle it wasn't a roaring stream or anything but there was enough trickle that you couldn't hear rustling in the brush it was down in the willows and we're walking back in there and so we get again 200 yards and we stop we're like okay we're coming up on that spot let's be smart Who's going to go first? You're going to have the pistol be behind you with the bear spray. You know, had a plan so that we just didn't walk into a situation. And I'll never forget walking around the corner with our headlamps and all of our headlamps hit the game bags about the same same time. And the game bags have little reflective strips on the bottom (laughs) of them. And it looked just like eyes sticking, you know, coming out of the willows there and made made our hearts skip a beat a little bit looking there and seeing that. But again, made noise walking up to it. We got up there, loaded up the packs and got out, but it was one in the morning, you know, when we're up there. So pitch dark, middle of the night. And uh, I think moving that meat away from the carcass uh, is a huge, huge deal. I'll share with you the only elk that I've killed in whatever, 30 years, 35 years of, of elk hunting, the only elk that I've killed and not gotten the ivories from it was that elk. And I left them in the skull and we used a saw to cut the antlers off the skull. And there was no way I was going back in there to, to dig the ivories <laughs> out the next day. So, <laughs> uh, No, your ivories might have been, uh, so the grizzly bear might have been pulling your ivories. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean... When I hunt grizzly country, I intentionally do not hunt solo because if I have success or my partner has success, I have way more comfort with one person doing the carving and cutting and one person keeping an eye 
on what's going on. Uh, looking for bears, listening for bears, because when you got your head down there and you're cutting and carving, you're so focused on salvaging every little bit of that meat that you're distracted. And every year there are the events where someone's working on an elk, grizzly bear comes up and says, hey, that's mine. And it's usually not a good outcome for the guy who had his head down carving on the elk. And so yep. for that for that purpose, I usually hunt with someone else with me in grizzly country. And you can, one, someone's looking for, over your shoulder and you can get an elk processed and taken care of quicker with two people than you can by yourself. You, like you were saying, you guys hauled the, the quarters away from the carcass. Uh, you can get that done quicker with two people than by yourself. There's just, in grizzly country, time, it, once the odors are in the air or the gunshot's been fired, it's like sand going out of an hourglass. <laughs> it is, you aren't going to stop it. The, the bears are now aware that you are there. So it's just a race of time to make sure that you get all these protocols taken care of. And like you said, I, I, I haul the, the carcass or, or haul the, the meat a couple hundred yards away from the carcass. That way, if the bear, he's probably going to smell the gut pile and the carcass and all that, and he can have it. I, I, yep. I go over there. Don't come over here where the meat is. And I usually hang the meat someplace where when I come back, I can, I mean, sometimes it's so thick you, you really can't, but I try to find a place where when I come back, I can see it from a, at least a reasonable distance that if it's been messed with, I'm, I'm not walking in there. If I see one of my game bags is tore open. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Mm, I, I don't need that headache. And, no, and I've just so. heard, you know, Ron's told stories. Like I mentioned, he's had so many encounters and they've told stories of, you know, shooting an elk and tracking it and spending an hour on the trail or whatever and walking up on it. And there's already a grizzly bear on it, eating it, you know, yeah. tearing into the elk laying there within an hour of them shooting. It's probably only been dead for 20 or 30 minutes, but those things have such good noses that if they smell blood, they come running. And at that point, there's there's nothing you can do. In fact, the fishing game and everybody will tell you, walk away from it. That's that's the bear's elk. Now it's not yours. Yeah. And uh, the worst thing is just, you know, getting in there and packing out two quarters and then going back in and the bears got the rest of it. And you, you lose that meat. But that first first time I went to Wyoming and I wasn't sure, you know, exactly where grizzly bear country was over there. I knew I wasn't in the in the heat of it, but I also knew that I was close and there were probably some bears and I was hunting by myself and shot an elk just again, you know, 30, 40 minutes before dark. And I thought if I sit here and try to take care of this, this elk by myself, it's going to take two or three hours just by the time I get it moved around and get it cut up and hung in a tree. And I just wasn't comfortable doing that. And so it's, again, one of the only times in the last 12 or 15 years that I've actually gutted an elk and I just gutted yeah. it out. It fortunately it was in a really open hillside area where I could come in the next day and watch and be able to see the carcass before I went up there, but I gutted it out and propped it open to let it cool and 
got out of there shortly after dark and knew I had to just leave it and it would be much safer to come in. Unfortunately, the next morning I came in and nothing had gotten on it. I was able to get it skinned up and packed out. And yeah, I'll tell you those two pack trips, I, I packed it out in two trips by myself and that was not Whoa. pleasant, but I Whoa. didn't want to make three trips back in there. I knew every time I went back, I was increasing the chances of a, of a bear encounter. Yeah. Well, when I go back in there, I'm carrying a shotgun for two reasons. <laughs> One, that shotgun is loaded with buckshot. Yeah, I just, uh, my ability to defend myself with a handgun, I have a greater likelihood of hurting myself with that handgun than I am defending myself. (laughs) So I just feel way more comfortable with buckshot in my short barreled, rather 12 or 20 gauge. And I bring some birdshot in case I see the forest chickens running around. Uh, Just, yeah. You know, you don't want to walk past a grouse. So uh, that's what I carry when I go back in there. I'm not carrying my rifle. I'm not carrying my bow. I'm carrying a shotgun. And people probably think, Newberg, you've lost it, man. And maybe I have. But (laughs) I feel way more comfortable walking into a a bunch of meat hanging in a tree in grizzly country with a shotgun in my hand than anything else. So I know everybody will say, and when I hunt, you know, when I'm archery hunting and rifle hunting, I'm I'm carrying bear spray. I don't, uh, as I explained, I'm so terrible with a handgun that that would really be a bad idea uh, for me to try to defend myself or anyone with a handgun. Uh, but I know some people go the opposite route. They're like, no, I don't use bear spray. I'm using a handgun. So I yeah, no, and I'm I'm the same. You know, it really comes down to what you're most comfortable with. But I just look at. You know, the, the incident where we were going in to check the trail camera and Donnie and John got a little whiff of bear spray from an accidental discharge. If that had been a handgun, you know, you're turning to run. There's everything in those moments. Everything is just chaos. It really is. And, and you yeah. can't prepare for it. You can be more prepared. But when it really happens, you know, it's you're you're in fight or flight and hopefully you're in flight mode because you don't want to fight a grizzly. But the chance of you turning to run and your finger squeezing on the, on the grip and the trigger of a pistol that's drawn, you could shoot a hunting partner. You know, and I think that that is the biggest concern for me is I'd much rather shoot my hunting partner with bear spray and he's not going to be very happy about it. And I'm probably going to end up with snakes in my backpack for years and, you know, be on his bad list for a while, but I'd much rather have that happen than take a chance of a pistol going off and, and, uh, causing damage that way. And so that, that's my reason for carrying bear spray over a handgun. Uh, like you said, a handgun's great, but a grizzly bear that's charging you isn't going to stop necessarily from hearing a gunshot going off. It's, it's only going to stop when a whole bunch of grain of lead goes into its skull and makes it stop. And again, hitting that target in those situations is, is not as easy. No. And I mean, the, the first encounter I had with a grizzly bear was in archery season, about a mile from the spot where you and I were just talking that you said I was shooting grouse while you and Lauren were (laughs) diving down into the, the teeth of the of the lion about a mile further west of there 
I'm walking along the trail and cow calling, and I look up on this hill where there's a little clear cut, and there's a herd of elk standing there. And they're looking down in front of where I'm walking. I'm thinking, oh, cool. There's got to be a bull right up there. They're looking at a bull. And I mean, I'm a really bad caller anyhow. So I, it didn't surprise me when they took off just running like crazy. I'm like, boy, my calling is really bad. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew it was bad, but it's really bad. And I'm thinking, well, heck, wonder that something scared them. Maybe it was me. So I start walking down, keep walking down the trail because I'm thinking there might be a bull elk where they were looking down into the trail in front of me. It looked like maybe 100 yards in front of me, they were looking at something just based on the angle of where their eyes were locked in. So there's a little rise in the trail and I start coming up that rise. And when I get to the crest of the rise in the trail, here is a monstrous big old boar grizzly bear walking down the trail my direction that's what they were looking at was this grizzly <laughs> bear. and my whiny elk cow calling i'm sure sounded to him like man that sounds like a lost calf i think i'm gonna go have me some dinner and we come we make eye contact probably 10 12 yards from each other Maybe it's long further than that. He was so big, he, he maybe looked at 10 to be only 10 yards away and he was 20. But he turned and took off and covered ground so fast as he took off running down through the bushes and deadfall that if he would have decided to come towards me, he would have been on me before I could have even got my hand to my bear spray. Yep. And... I, it's like, whoa, I am so lucky that that was not a sow with cubs because she wouldn't have run. She would have come to me to protect her cubs. This was a solo bear, great big bear who just said, you know what? I don't like humans. And off he went down into the brush. But that gave me a firsthand experience of how quick it happens, how unprepared I was, how the adrenaline kicks in instantly and i was just uh, i don't know what i would have done quite honestly i i yeah i would have scrambled to get my bear spray out but i couldn't have got it out got the you know the lock mechanism off it he would have been chewing on my head before i could have got all that done now if i would have had a handgun it's not like you archery hunt walking through the the trees with your the, the <laughs> woods with your yeah your bow in your left hand and your your Glock in your right hand. I mean, it, I would have uh, if I would have been carrying a sidearm and a holster, he would have been on me before I could have ever drawn that that sidearm. So yep. that was that that was such a an eye opener for me of how quickly it happened and how fast a bear can move. I now have no false ideas that I'm going to do some John Wayne, Clint Eastwood thing on a charging grizzly bear. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not going to be able to do it, folks. Some, maybe some people can, and Hey, you know what? All the more power to you. I, I couldn't. So it's, uh, yep. So that that also, we've talked, you know, about the, what to do at camp and cooking, what to do when you get a, an elk down and you're processing it. And I think there, 
definitely things that you need to do and you have to do in those two scenarios to to be safe and to be prepared. The one that you just talked about, though, the in the field stuff, I think, is the the part that you really we go against the grain there as hunters. That's, you know, we're there, we're trying to keep the wind in our face so anything in front of us can't smell us. We're slipping along quietly so nothing can hear us. Um, You know, we're we're looking for the element of surprise for the elk that we're hunting. But unfortunately, we've got the element of surprise on the bears too. And, you know, you've got the the surprising a cow with saw or a, a sow with cubs you've got uh, walking up on an elk or a bear that's on a on a dead elk and then you're sometimes calling you know cow calling and stuff and that'll that'll call bears in so for me that's kind of the one that's the wild card that you know you've just got to yep. you've got to be so cautious and so alert to what's around you and have whether it's a sidearm or your bear spray, you've got to have it readily accessible. It can't be in your backpack. It's got to be, you have to know how to use it. You know, I I remember the first time I had the bear spray, we were three or four days into the hunt and I thought, I've never fired bear spray before. It took me a minute and a half to figure out how to get the protective cap off of it so I didn't spray myself. (laughs) Had that been the first time, you know, it, it would have been a disaster. And so, you know, there's just, there's a lot of things that you can do in in the camp situation in the elk on the ground situation but when you're hunting you've got to realize you're you're breaking the laws of of uh, staying safe common yeah. sense yeah. <laughs> yeah a lot of the things we do while hunting go against all of the recommendations they have for bear avoidance yep. you know talk loud <laughs> make noise go in groups of two or more uh you know all these things it's like well yeah that uh, that's fine but we aren't going to kill many elk doing that yep. um so that I, I agree with you that's the wild card the the probably the highest risk part of what i might be doing when i'm out there is the actual the act of hunting of being quiet stealthy calling putting the wind in my face, following elk tracks or following something that has my mind distracted where I'm really not even paying attention. Uh, I think if I ever get eaten by a grizzly bear, it's it's probably not going to be in my camp. It's probably not going to be while I'm carving and cutting a grizzly bear. It's going to be because I have a really bad encounter like I just described of my archery hunt when I had that encounter and it's probably going to be that unfortunate time when it's a sow and cubs rather than a big old boar. And for me, or maybe it's a big, big old boar that I, like you'd mentioned and I, I hadn't thought about this, but he's already on a carcass and you walk into his perimeter, not knowing. And he sees you, he's like, look, I already had to whoop three other guys for to keep this carcass. I'm coming to whoop you too. Yeah, and I talk, you know, about so. the time of September when I'd rather be hunting. It's that 15th through 23rd time frame somewhere in there. But if I'm hunting in grizzly country, I purposely go earlier. You know, Wyoming opens September 1st. Uh, Montana usually opens sometime in that same time frame. Idaho's August 30th. If I'm hunting where I know there's a, a high density of grizzlies, 
I'm hunting that first week of season for a couple reasons. Number one, like you mentioned earlier, the bears are still in berry mode. You know, they're going to be up higher, probably not going to be down where the elk are. The reason they come down to where the elk are is because they start smelling gut piles. And that first week of season, yeah. there's no gut piles on the ground. Um, you aren't walking up on, on other people's carcasses from three or four days prior nearly as much as you are that third and fourth week of September. By October, a gunshot goes off and it's a dinner bell. I mean, it really is. I would not rifle hunt in October in heavy grizzly country because they are just, they're accustomed. They're, they're down there looking for those easy meals. And so I do, I purposely, if we're going to hunt grizzly country, I usually don't hunt after the 15th of September because there's less carcasses in the area. The bears are more likely going to be focused on berries. By the 15th, the berries are drying up and the bears are turning towards carcasses for a, for an easy meal. Well, <clears throat> I've told my crew that if there are two camera guys with me and I get attacked by a grizzly bear, <laughs> the cam camera number one is required to film. Camera number two better try their best to get this grizzly bear distracted so that he only maims me and doesn't kill me. And I tell my wife, my idea of a perfect death would be to die up in the woods and have a grizzly bear consume me and convert me back into soil. <laughs> that, that's my wish. I don't want to be buried in a casket. I don't want to be cremated. I want a grizzly bear to scavenge my carcass and convert me back to soil. <laughs> she looks at me like, are you okay? Hey, you, you all right? You, you doing okay today? <clears throat> so... And some of the places I hunt elk, she often tells me, you know what, that that final wish you ask for, you keep hunting those places, you might get that final wish. Yeah. Mm, I, I didn't say I wanted to die so. by a grizzly. I just wanted to be consumed after I died. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so if ever I do get attacked by a grizzly bear, don't any of you criticize camera number one because he's been told his job requires that he captures this on video. Now, camera number two, if he drops his camera and runs to the truck, he's fired. He's he's supposed to run and spray the bear with bear spray <laughs> as I'm struggling. We tell John, cam camera guy John, we tell him the same thing. Hey, if you're in the back and there is a grizzly encounter, you keep filming. That's we've we've yeah. got the situation under control. We've got the bear spray, you know, but it, inevitably that's that's what we do. We we collect content, and we aren't out there trying to get into a situation where there's uh, a grizzly encounter. Uh, but I think there's a lot of education value that could come from seeing that for a lot of other people. <laughs> you know, if if it's on us and it's like gnawing on our skull, you know, go ahead and pan off to the sunset or something don't sit there and film it but but in that situation where it's tense and where we're trying to figure out whether to make noise or stay quiet and you know i think that i would i think it'd be awesome to be able to film that and have that film to share and and educate people and show them what what happens but it's like when brinker stabbed himself in the leg with the broadhead you know we got up there and assessed the situation said okay there's we can't have three people huddled over the top of him wrapping his leg up here. John 
go ahead and film. You know, you're, we don't need your hand. You're, you're good. And he starts filming. Well, man, he got criticized from people watching it. Seriously. The cameraman didn't have the decency to set the camera down and try to help the guy. And it's like, man, he's, (laughs) if it was just, just him and Brinker there and he was filming his Brinker's bleeding out. Yeah. That's a different story, but we had it under control. So, yeah. Uh, well, uh, I guess the the reason that I felt this was a a worthwhile topic for a podcast is how many emails we get. You and I get questions on it all the time, and the fact that some of the best elk hunting in the Northern Rockies is in grizzly country, and you just gotta gotta be bear aware, as they call it. And a lot of it, you know, you look at. Or you just go go hunt somewhere yeah. else. <laughs> and I think a lot of people do avoid those areas just because of the unknown. Uh, for me, it's rattlesnakes. Grizzly bears don't bother me. Wolves don't bother me. <laughs> Seriously, it's, it's rattlesnakes. There are some areas that I have seen some giant elk that I have picked up some big sheds that I know in September the rattlesnakes are just flat out ornery and I won't go in there. And... You know, a lot of it has to do with just education and comfort. Donnie grew up in Nevada and he, I mean, he'll walk up and take his shoe off and thump a rattlesnake on the head and you won't, you won't (laughs) see me anywhere near it, but he grew up around it. He's comfortable with it. Mm. And so I think, you know, as people, if they can become comfortable that, Hey, if you take all the precautions, the chances of an encounter, the chances of, of an attack, are going to be lower. You know, I'm not going to say they're going to be low, yeah. but they're going to be lower. And that should give you a little bit more confidence that some of these areas, nobody's going into, especially non-resident draw areas. Uh, you look at Wyoming, there's some areas there that are heavy grizzly areas that are draw only for a non-resident. And a lot of people avoid those. And there's a good chance that you could draw that uh, with zero, one, two, three points and go in and have an incredible hunt. And that's one thing I've noticed about Wyoming. You come to Idaho in grizzly country or wolf country, the elk are skittish, the elk are quiet. In Wyoming, for whatever reason, those elk are brave. They, you know, they bugle, they they carry on just like there's no predators there. And uh, if you're willing to go in there with, with the brave elk and the predators, you can have a great hunt in some of those areas. Well, I I would hope that people who are interested in hunting these cool places learn what is required to be bear aware and and they go do it. I I mean, I I back to your point about your first night in grizzly country. Yeah, you you lay there and every little squirrel that drops a pine cone, you want to blow him <laughs> up like bill murray did in caddyshack with the gophers <laughs> but after you get more comfortable with it you do start to enjoy the fact that it's usually good elk numbers less hunters and you do say a little prayer of safety every morning as you head out and you know uh watch over yep. me today because <laughs> i i know i'm exposing myself to some yep. risks here um, but I, I don't want people to quit hunting those places or to, 
to be there and, and be in such fear that they don't have any fun, that they don't enjoy it at all. That's, that's not and it And I either. can relate to that. So. You know, when I hunt in an area where there are rattlesnakes, I, I seriously can't mm-hmm. enjoy it. I'm, I'm looking at the ground. I'm listening for snakes. And it's, uh, it's not enjoyable to me. And that's why I avoid it. So I can certainly relate to people who don't want to go and, and hunt in grizzly country. And I know a lot of people listening are shaking their head going, you're okay on your hands and knees coming face to face with a grizzly bear, but you won't <laughs> hike down a trail when a <laughs> little rattlesnake might slither across in front of you. But yeah, that's, that's the way it is. Don't you have a chapter in the university, the online course, the University of Elk Hunting, about this yeah. kind of stuff? Uh, nothing on rattlesnakes in there, but uh, other no. other predators, yeah. So I break down, uh, there's a full chapter, a uh, full module on common challenges, and one of the chapters is on predators. Uh, and, you know, I talk about wolves and how wolves affect elk hunting, uh, how they affect the elk. Uh, and then it's another section on grizzly bears, and I lump black bear and mountain lion and coyotes in together because they're really not a lot of concern for them, both on, on their effect on the elk and on the human interaction side. But grizzly bears and wolves, uh, I break those down. And, you know, wolves, we, we probably can talk about wolves on another episode as far as interaction with people, but uh, I'm not I'm not concerned about wolves at all as far as attacking me or causing any harm to me, they're curious for sure. And you might have some pretty cool experiences and close, close calls with them, but not anything where you feel like your life is endangered. But I think, uh, grizzlies are, are those ones that probably the only one that I would say you you have to tread pretty cautiously. Yeah, I, I would put grizzly bears further up the food chain than any of the other <laughs> critters that we might encounter out there. Mountain lions, they intrigue me to no end. I've only seen one stalking a white-tailed deer while I was out hunting. Uh, all the other times, all I ever see is their their tracks. Uh, I've been on some chases with hounds where we've treed lions and stuff, but... Uh, Again, I I know in some places, yeah, you read about the jogger in California or Colorado who gets attacked by a, a lion. But I I think relative to the lion numbers and the amount of people running around and doing things in lion country, the percentage of, of problems is minuscule compared to the number of encounters in grizzly country when you figure – how many how far fewer grizzlies there are but yet how many more encounters there are uh that that results in a much higher percentage risk than a mountain lion and mountain lions and i'm i'm kind of the opposite i think i'm kind of the cougar magnet because i can't oh i can't tell you how many i've seen out in the wild i've hit them with my truck i've uh i've ran hounds you know grew up with hounds and I ran them for a while and had a, had a cougar kill a hound and ended up basically almost stepping on the cougar, not realizing it had killed the hound and was laying right there. And, um, yeah, I, we mm-hmm. could probably spend a whole podcast just sharing my encounters and stories with mountain lions, but <laughs> they are, they are the apex predator. If, if a mountain lion decided it wanted human for dinner, 
it would hunt yeah. you down and it would kill you and you wouldn't even know it. It's they are just they are the yep. apex predator. And the, like you said, the fact that there are yeah, there are there are a few encounters, a few attacks and a, a few fatalities from mountain lion attacks. Uh, but the percentage and the, the chance of that is probably lower than just about anything else. And uh, they, they just they don't like humans. They they have big territories. Uh, they. They aren't densely populated most of the time. They, like I said, they don't like to be around humans. They have a good food source in other things. And about the only time you hear of an attack, it's usually uh, a young male that is probably more curious yeah. than anything and hasn't had any encounters with humans and sees a human jogging by or riding by on a mountain bike and thinks, oh, fast moving meal and goes and, and attacks. But aside from that, you really don't hear much on mountain lion attacks. No. <clears throat> well, how can people get this module in your online course? Well, the University of Elk Hunting, you can just go to elk101.com and click on the link to the online course and uh, can read about some of the highlights in it. And then if you're ready to sign up, follow the link to sign up. If you use the promo code ELKTALK, it's going to save you $20. You're able to sign up for $79. You get a, a year access to the online course. And, you know, this common challenges module is just one of 17 existing modules. And we're working on adding some more to it all the time but uh, there's everything from planning a hunt to scouting gear using elk calls calling elk setting up on elk tracking elk packing elk um, randy's got a whole module in there on post rut and late season uh, it's really a very comprehensive look at every single aspect of of increasing your success as an elk hunter cool well my my life experience is that the more informed I am when it comes to something like grizzly bears, the more knowledge brings confidence. Confidence eliminates fears. So, in effect, knowledge eliminates fears. And yep. I, I'm always a little hesitant to say I'm comfortable hunting in grizzly country because when someone reads a news article, you know, Bozeman, Montana hunter eaten and killed by grizzly bear this year, and they'd look and say, oh, yeah, Randy Newberg got ate by a grizzly bear. They're all going to say, yeah, see, <laughs> why was I listening to that guy? <laughs> yeah, serve, serves him right. He was comfortable. He deserved it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, not like, it's not like we're like Timothy Treadwell out there feeding the bears by hand and, right. you know, naming them and standing there and deserving to be attacked we're taking every precaution we can and weighing the risk and, and the reward there and realizing hey if we do everything right the chances are low and that doesn't mean yeah. that the reality is that there could be a, an encounter or an attack but i think when we when we weigh out our precautions and the risks that come from that the it's it's worth it yeah, and uh, the reality is I look at where I did my film permit applications for my Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana elk hunts this year. Every one of them came back with an application that says, please check the box that you have read these grizzly bear precautions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll check that box. Uh, so 
I, point point of that being is I have three hunts this year that are going to be in the core grizzly bear country. And uh, I hope I don't have a problem. But yep. I'm, I'm going to use all the things that we just talked about to try lower that risk. And I know that there is that there does not exist a zero risk scenario. But when you think about anything in our daily lives, there are no zero risk propositions. So we, I tell we, people that all the time. You know, if you're if you're scared to go out for a a hike or a run because of your fear of wolves or cougars, the the odds of being attacked are minuscule compared to the odds of getting in a uh, vehicular fatality or getting hit in a crosswalk, walking across to, you know, fill your espresso for the morning or, you know, and you look at those, those statistics, you're way more likely to, to be ran over by a car or hit by a train or, you know, things like that. And so just, I I think that's where I find some comfort is, Hey, the odds are, are in my favor. I'm going to be smart about it and I'm not going to let it, affect me to the point where I can't enjoy it unless right. it's rattlesnakes, even though I know that the <laughs> odds are very low there. I can't get over that one. But Well, one time I was doing some research that was trying to create equivalences, uh, and this was to put my wife at ease. <laughs> you were doing research to come up with equivalences to put your. I thought you were going to tell us about a time you were a professional witness in a lawsuit or something. Well, no, I've been that in my CPA life, but no, I was yeah. trying to make her comfortable that look, way more people drown while fishing, way more people get killed by lightning while golfing than get eaten by grizzly bears. Yep, and I didn't make much progress with her. Other than we both, since she likes to fish, we both concluded that it would be a shame to die of getting electrocuted on a golf course. That that you you've lost in life if that's where you die. So she was fine dying while fishing, and I was told her, "Well, just like you, you love to fish, so you're fine taking those risks for fishing. I'm fine taking those risks for hunting. So we're equal here." So she just looked at me like gave me that you're really stupid mister so (laughs) she knew that when she married me so but Corey, we've kept the audience for a while i'd hate for you to miss out on your afternoon of going and laying a big sidewalk full of flagstone yeah it is that time it's uh, the sun is all the way up in the sky we're coming into the heat of the day so now is the time for manual labor outside well, that didn't make sense, did it? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I I think for someone who's a, a, a likes the self inflicted pain like you do, it probably makes complete sense. I was going to say we're elk hunters, so we're coming up on less than two months till elk season, and it is time to uh, make sure we are prepared physically. So I'm going to just go oh. and sweat and lift fifty pound chunks of flagstone and carry them and set them and. Yeah. Well, if somebody sees me walking around Bozeman today and I'm humped over like Quasimodo or something, yesterday was my first hike with a real heavy pack. I've been uh, back to my hiking routine and I loaded my pack way heavier than I should have. And I thought, oh, I got this. 
by about five o'clock, I was two and a half hours into this hike. I was dying. And uh, <laughs> I woke up this morning. I'm like, whew, you sure I'm not 85 instead of 55? My goodness. So if any of you see me walking around town with a cane or a walker, it's because I put way too much weight in my pack. You shouldn't go from a 25-pound pack to a 60-pound pack overnight. You should kind of work your way into that. At least if you're, if you're, yeah, if you're over age 50, you should at least do it that way. I'm, I'm paying the price today. So, oh, wow. And I'm just, you know, I tore my calf a couple months ago. I actually got discharged from physical therapy last week. So it's considered a hundred percent healed. There you go. And I think the, the thing that saved me was I couldn't work my legs as much during the last two months. So I did more upper body. And I woke up the morning after the, the first day of laying that flagstone and thought, I don't feel nearly like I thought I would this morning and hmm. feel okay. Other than that sunburn, that one, yeah, well, I learned my lesson from that one again. I won't repeat that until next year, I'm sure. If it counts for anything, you know, the tax deadline got extended until two days from now. And I got a big callus on my middle finger over here from holding a pencil. That's the equivalent of not being sore from because you're a contractor part time. So I'm I'm just trying to think of what accountants have for war stories. You know, I got a callus on where I hold my pencil. So. <laughs> well, just to set the record straight, I am only the personal contractor for my wife. I am not an actual contractor anymore. And have swore off that profession, but. My wife has not let me let go of that one yet. Well, my wife just bought five acres. Is there any way she could pull you out of retirement to come to Montana and build a house for her? I don't think so. Okay. I'm going to I'm gonna tell her, no, I've listened to too many of Randy's podcasts, and I am just not a handy guy. So There you go. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Well, we'll probably end up reselling it because we'll argue about what size of house and who's going to build it for five or ten years. It, uh, but we'll be in the nursing home by the time we solve all the issues related to building our third house. The first two, <laughs> the, they they say if you can build a house, your marriage survives building a house. You've got a good marriage. We've built two of them. And I, I don't know. Maybe I'm pressing my luck to think we're going to build a third one. Huh. Yeah. That's just uh, just strengthening your marriage. That or increasing the likelihood that I'm going to be sleeping yeah. in a tent. <laughs> yeah. I, get, I get enough time in a tent every year. I get, you know, many, many weeks in a tent. I don't need more days in a tent because my wife and I are arguing about what color of paint to put on the guest bedroom or something. <laughs> uh, let's let the people go, Corey. I, I'm, yeah. Here I am. I run us down in the ditch again. I'm sorry. I was going to say, we're going we're gonna to stray into more marital oh, advice here, and they, but, they didn't pay for that. But before they go, so we did get a bunch of questions about the Corey Jacobson calls. The people are asking, what call, should, what diaphragm call should I use? And I know you're bashful, you're modest, you're not going to talk about your line of calls, but it, don't you have like a package that has a bugle tube, a cow call, and a double read or something that is like the Elk 101 series? 
Yeah, we've uh, we've got a, a series of elk calls, and I don't remember what they call the kit. You can go on the Elk 101 store and buy them, or you can buy them straight from Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, who's a sponsor of the podcast, and you get a, a nice discount there by using the promo code ELKTALK. But uh, we've got the, the Bully Bull Extreme Bugle Tube, which is one that we developed several years ago, and it's actually available with the Sitka Subalpine cover on it. Uh, and then the Temptress Cow Call is the open read cow call, real easy, you know, like the old bite and blow, but this one's got a, a few features on it that make it easier to use and make it far more realistic sounding. And then we have three diaphragms in that line, the the Champ, the All-Star, and the Contender are those three diaphragms. And you can buy all five of those items in a package and uh, cool. get them all together there. So, so they should go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com, pick those. And use promo code ELKTALK. And I think they say 15%, is it? Yep, 15% yeah. on your, your elk call order. Cool. Well, we at some point in time, we're, we're probably going to have to do a podcast on that. And I'll just serve up the questions and you can do all the answers. Uh, okay. But we've... we've in the last month, we've been getting a lot of questions <laughs> about selection of calls. And I know every once in a while it comes up and we touch on it. But at some point in time, maybe we got to give the, the full rationale for all of it. And yep. you would be the yeah, expert. There's, there's a lot that- there's a lot that goes into selecting calls and using calls. And this time of year, I think we're all thinking quite a bit on, on improving our calling. So be a great topic here in the near future. Cool. Well, should we let them go? Well, I think if I don't go here pretty soon, my wife's going to come and drag me up to the house to all help right. her with the flagstone. She's probably been up there. She probably has her part all done for the day and started on mine. Yeah. She's probably... Oh sitting there tapping her feet saying where is he <laughs> i'm gonna get a text message from her here anytime saying would you guys get off that stupid podcast he's got work to do <laughs> no she's way too uh, polite she is she'll do my work for me and then just, she won't even say a thing she'll just do it for me and let me feel the guilt of not being there to do it yeah silence is the worst pain Oh man, and the cold shoulder yep. treatment is like the most painful thing. Like, oops, I really stepped in it this time. Yep. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about that. I've got a couple of uh, elk hunting situations we can relate to that silent treatment and and the uh, <laughs> the tone of your talking. Yeah, those are all tactics that I used to call in elk. So. <laughs> Uh, they come from experience outside the elk world. That's for sure. Uh, well. Thanks for being here, folks. Hope you have a great day. Yep. Corey, enjoy that flagstone out there. I will. I'll, uh, I'll send you some updates on Instagram so that you can follow along and see my progress and my suffering. All right. Take care. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys.